Yes, and good morning. We are glad that you are here today. And young student people type people, we are glad you are here today. You know, we did a little hand thing. You know, I said, are you going to do the hand thing? I said, well, they didn't ask, you know. And Carmel said, you went up there, dude. So, so yeah. Yeah, and you know what that does? It just like energizes me because all that young juices just get on me. I could preach like an hour. Oh, shoot that thing. Shoot that thing. Hey, really, we are glad that you're here. And this is a great crowd. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming out today. And we find ourselves on the last message of our Love It Ain't For Sissy series. I hope it's been a good, challenging message. And even though it's a very familiar scripture, I'm hoping this will be very challenging um, for you also. Our verse has been, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And our sermon title is Neighborhood Watch and the Three Little Pigs. I had picked out something different. Um, It was three coins in the fountain. And my wife said that was really stretching. And the idea was, you know, the song, well, in my brain, the song goes, Three coins in the fountain. Which one will the fountain bless? And it was going to be the, you know, the Samaritan and the three people. And which one would God bless? But that's not even what the song says, so that didn't work. And she said, Dwayne, you're really stretching it on that one. So I said, well, okay, all right, all right, girl. You want to be stretched? I'll stretch you. How about Neighborhood Watch and Three Little Pigs? Yeah, that'd be stretching to you. See, Neighborhood Watch is something we came up with in 1972. The National Sheriff's Association came up with a program that neighbors would organize themselves to, get ready, watch out for each other. To watch out for each other. And so then along comes the three pigs. See, the story goes like this. There was a neighborhood, and it had a neighborhood watch program. And these three pigs decided to move into the neighborhood. The first pig came in, and his idea was, you know what? I don't care about the neighborhood. In fact, he set about and really just hurt the neighborhood. You see, he built this house out of straw. And property values plummeted, but he didn't care because it was all about him. Well, the next two pigs that moved in lived together. They were brothers. And so they moved into the house, and they had a house of sticks, and they just didn't care one way or another. They were just, well, whatever, you know. And so they're almost invisible to community. They didn't necessarily hurt the community, but nor did they help the community. And so there they were. And then finally, the last pig built a house full of brick, and property values soared up. And not only that, his heart was with the neighborhood, and he did everything he could to help his neighborhood. And so we have the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to see three groups of people and how they responded to the situation. We're going to, first scripture is going to be from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we have um, Jesus in a teaching setting, okay? And there were some, some, as there always were, some scribes and Pharisees there. And so one of the, uh, the teachers of the law stands up and he says, One day, an expert in religious law. Now, by the way, here's something you need to write down. You know, one day is a good day to learn. One day is a good, always a good day to learn a lesson, especially from the Word of God. And you never, listen, just like your life, Jesus never knew. 
He never knew what was going to happen that day. And the Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. That's what's cool about being a Christian, is we believe a sovereign God watches over us. In fact, Psalm 139 says every day of our lives was planned before a single one of them was lived. And so one day is a good day to learn about Jesus. Well, it happened. One day an expert in religious law, note that, stood up and wanted to test Jesus by asking him this question. So it's good he wants to ask a question, but the motivation is not right. Okay? He wants to test Jesus. He wants to put Jesus on the spot. Bad idea. Bad idea. Teacher, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, being an expert of the law, he should have already figured this one out. But again, it's a bad motivation. He's there to test Jesus. He really doesn't even care about the answer that Jesus is going to give him. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, first off, please understand and write this down if you're taking notes, is that Jesus is not leading this man down a path where he's going to learn that the law will save him. Because we know that our works cannot make us right before God. In fact, Paul said in Romans 3.20, For no one will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. See, the purpose of the law was to show us our sin. The purpose of the law was to show us that we needed a Savior. You know, when Jesus said, what does the law of Moses say? I'll tell you what the law of Moses says. It says, son, you're in deep weeds and you need a savior. You need Jesus Christ. So Jesus poses this question to get him to think about really his need of a savior. And that's what Jesus is prodding with your heart today. If you don't know Christ, he's prodding you to help you understand you need a savior. Well, the guy gives a great answer. You know, he says, well, here's what the law says. Here's what the law says. There's what the law... Oh, that's not what the law says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The man answered. (laughs) The man answered and said, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives a really, he really gives a great answer. And it's really cool. This, This is saying you've got to love God All in. He said, when he says you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, he's saying every ounce of emotion that you have. Every, you know, the men in America, particularly men, but women too, are fixing to exercise a lot of emotion because we are fixing to go into March Madness. And, and whether you're a Kentucky fan or whatever fan, Indiana fan or Kansas fan, whatever it is, a lot of emotion is going to be poured out. And he says you need to love God with all your emotion. You need to love God with all your soul, and that's your being. Down to every ounce that you are, you need to love God with all your soul. You need to love God with all your strength. You love God with all your strength, every bit of your ability. You've got to be all in with God. And then he says, you've got to love with all your mind, with all your intellect. Gee, you know, the, the words, you know, the, the guy says and the Bible says, you've got to love God with everything that you are. And then, and then it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's really cool. This is a great answer. It's a great answer. You know, in fact, Jesus said, here's what Jesus said. You know, one time Jesus got asked, what are the two greatest commands? Well, here they were. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. That's the greatest command. And here's what Jesus said. All the law, all the law, and the prophets hinge on this, on this. This is a huge right answer. But the deal is, 
is what you do with that. Our teaching point says this. The gospel life boils down to these two simple ingredients. Love God and love people. See, we make, we make this whole God thing and relationship with God thing and knowing, knowing God thing and living God thing really too complex. It simply boils down to love God, love people. Love God, love people. I like this better. I wish I'd thought about it before I printed the slide. You know, the, the, the best part is, you know, it's the gospel message and the gospel life. You see, you can't love God until you understand the gospel message. And the gospel message is this. Every person has offended God. Every person is separated from God. Uh, the Bible says it this way. All have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us are separated from God. And because of that, there's a wage, a payment, and the payment of that is death. And that death is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. It's really a serious deal. A serious deal. And someone, so therefore, had to die for our sins. And guess what God does? It would have done no good because we were guilty for us to nail ourselves to a cross. So what does God do? God sends down his innocent son, born of a virgin, sinless life, and then allows him to be nailed to a Roman cross, not as a murderer, not as a martyr, but as a savior of the world. He comes and he dies on a Roman cross because the payment for sin is is death. And of course, the cool part is, and we're going to celebrate in about four weeks, is that he does not stay dead. He comes back to life. So, so the first part, the message of the gospel is God loves you. God loves you so much, he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And if you are willing to turn away from your sin and follow Jesus, you can have eternal life. You can have Jesus here to help you through this crazy life. And then you have Jesus eternally in a place called heaven with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's a great deal. So the gospel message is love God, and that means that. And then he says, though, love people. So we not only have a proper response to the gospel message, we have a proper response to the gospel life. And the gospel life, again, is simplistic. You simply act like Jesus. And what did Jesus do with people? He loved people. He loved people. He didn't care what skin color, what social economic status, what their nationality was, what language they spoke, how they dressed. Excuse me, maybe bring it up here. How many tats and how many piercings. It just didn't matter. He didn't, he didn't matter to him what addictions they had. He loved people. He loved people. And that's a proper response to the gospel life. So, so when, when the man said that, this is what he was talking about. He's not just simply loving God, responding to God's love with the gospel message, and then living it out through the gospel life. And the ingredients are simple, but the execution is pretty challenging. And it's only challenging because it's difficult, because it's challenging, I should say. You know, I think about our students here, and we are just so incredibly glad, glad to have this group of students with us. Guys, I really want you to know that. I want you to know that, dude. And we're really, I mean, you add life to our church, you know, and us old people need that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So we're really glad to have our students here. But you need to understand, as you guys are growing in your faith and you make that commitment to Jesus Christ, you just need to understand it's a challenge. And, you know, when you go to share your faith at high school or middle school or elementary school as far as that, you know, there may be rejection. There may be some things you go through. But, but it's worth the call. It's worth the challenge of sharing and living out the gospel. The, the ingredients may be simple, but the execution is simply challenging. 
So anyway, so then, so then we, we come down where Jesus responds to the answer. He says, you know, in verse number 28, he says, you're right. He says, you're right. Jesus told him, do this, respond to the gospel message, and then not to earn God's favor, but then live out the gospel life. Do this, and you will live. And the man, the man wanted, I like this word, the man wanted to justify his actions so he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? How far do I have to go? Now, there's one thing about being a Jesus follower, you need to understand. God doesn't have too many limits. You know, for, aren't you glad he doesn't say, okay, you get, you get 600 forgivenesses, and then you're done, you're out of luck. No, you know, it's, 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 just, pro, it's just on and on and on. We don't serve a God of limits. We serve a God of unlimited. He's just strictly unlimited. And so, so the man, though, wants to add a limitation. So who is my neighbor? And he, by doing that, he wanted to justify himself. Do you see something up there? Do you see something? You know, he didn't say, he didn't say, well, like, how many rules do I have to keep? And the only thing I can figure out, the dude, the dude must have thought he nailed that. I guess when he looked at his life, he goes, I am a great rule keeper. I, I am doing the rule thing really good. However, I might have a little problem loving my neighbor. Trust me, he didn't get the rule thing down either. He didn't get it right. But it was a great question, and who is my neighbor? See, a great question, but a wrong question. The question shouldn't have been, who is my neighbor? The question really should have been, you know, how can I be a good neighbor? You know, you know, Jesus, Jesus did this so well. He, he would redirect a conversation. In this case, he goes from who is my neighbor, his I'm going to tell you how to be a good neighbor. Now, have you ever thought about how many sermons you've ever heard? You know, you know if you got saved last week, it may not be very many. But, but if you're like me and like lots of other people, you've been saved a long time and you've been in church all your life. I mean, seriously, I was in church pretty much from a baby. Uh, there was a time when I think mama got mad at the preacher or something and we were out for like eight months or something. I don't really remember the details, but I remember we were out of church. But other than that, though, I've always gone to church. So I've, I've just heard a pile of sermons. You know how many I remember? Well, well, two. I do remember the first sermon I ever preached when I got like called to the preacher thing. And, you know, and it was, you know, do you know that you know that you know that you've been saved? But other than that, I don't, I, Brother Conway was an old guy, and I don't remember anything he ever said. And Brother James Branch was my hero. I probably modeled, modeled my ministry after him, and I don't remember anything he said either. But back about 1975, I was going to the Faith Baptist Church, and my pastor was Gene Weinshardt. And he got up one day, and he preached this scripture. And for some reason, it lodged in my brain. And I want to share that with you today. It's just the mantras. It's just the, the thoughts, the three thoughts. But I hope they'll stick in your mind, just like they stuck in my mind, because it's so um, important. So, to answer the man's question, Jesus decides to tell a story. Now, here's what's really cool. At least two commentaries that I read said, you know what? Jesus doesn't say this is a parable. You know, usually the you know, Bible says, and Jesus spoke to them in a parable. Well, he doesn't do that. The Bible says they tell a story. And these two commentaries that, that I really respect said there is a strong possibility that this is true. 
And that really adds validity to it. Because you got, we, got, we got a priest who does the wrong thing, and the priests were like the local rock stars sometimes, okay? Sometimes. But yeah, and then you've got this dreaded Samaritan, the despised Samaritan, and, and he's the hero of the story. And most Jews would say, there ain't no way that's true. Unless they'd heard it on the 6 o'clock news. You know, Walter Cronkite. Hi, this is Walter Cronkite. And we have a report of a man being assaulted on that dreaded road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And reports are that he was half dead and that two people walked by. Yes, one was a priest and the other was a temple assistant. But amazingly, the dreaded, despised Samaritan stopped and helped him. And that's evening news. And that's the way it is. I mean, that would add validity to the story. So it's possible, perhaps probable, that this is a true story. So Jesus starts retelling the evening news. So he says, so it goes like this. So there was a Jewish man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, now this is this is a dangerous. This is not like, oh boy, we're going to Disney World. I can't wait to get there. This is a dreaded journey. Um, from Jerusalem to Jericho was about fifteen miles. A guy that, that did the research for this, you know, he said I walked it, and to walk fifteen miles took me at a good pace um, all day, eight hours. So it's an all day journey. Okay, um, the the elevation changes from. From, you know, by 3,000 feet. So here's Jerusalem, and 3,000 feet later, here's Jericho. And it's that dreaded place of the mountains. It's that dreaded place where there's all uh, nooks and crannies where people can hide who want to hurt you. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a den of thieves kind of place. It wasn't like 95 or 75 or 55 or 57. It was a dreaded place. It's the place that the psalmist describes in Psalm 126. It's that place where, where the guy looks up at the mountains and, and he says, you know, you know I, I, I lift my eyes, I look up at the mountains, and again, it's not, a, oh boy, look, there are the mountains. Oh, I've just been waiting to see the mountains. It's this dreaded thing. He's got to go. It's a journey. It's a journey he cannot put off. He has to go, but he knows it's dangerous. So he says, I, I, will, I will lift my eyes to the hills. And when I look at the hills, my heart is filled with dread. I told Judy this week, and I don't mind telling you, this, this world, in my 68 years, this world's just a little bit crazier than it's ever been. I mean, this, I wasn't around for World War II, but this thing Putin's doing with Ukraine and Europe smacks of World War III. And good news is, by the way, God's got this. He's a sovereign God. But it is a crazy, crazy world. And, and we look at our future, and, and we look at those mountains, and we go, I know I've got to make this journey, but it just frightens me some. And that's okay. Maybe it's your world right now. Maybe the doctor has spoken cruel words like cancer and no hope. Or perhaps the doctor has said you've got so long to live. Or, or maybe your husband said. Or maybe your wife said. Or maybe your parents said. They said something. And your world's just rocked. And maybe you're asking yourself, what's it look like? For the first time, I'm really uncertain about the future. What's it look like? I think it was Corey Ten Boom 
who said you never should be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen in the stock market. I don't know what's happening in the culture. But I serve a God who does. Because that's what it says. You know, that's, that psalm says, you know, I'll lift my eyes into the hills. And then he asks the question, where comes my help? And your help comes from the one who made the mountains. Your help comes from the one bigger and stronger than anything you can imagine. Well, this guy was looking at this. Okay. He sees the mountains. And, and he goes, man, this is a worst case scenario. I know what happens to people who travel this route. There are pe- bad people waiting. And these bad people's mantra says this. What's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. What's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. So sure enough, sure enough, the Bible says there were some ba- There were his worst fears come true. There were some bandits. By the way. Your worst fears might come true. But there's a hero. That's a good place for an amen. Your worst fears may come true. But there's a hero in the story. In our story, his name is Jesus. He's nameless in this story. But in our story, his name is Jesus. We don't know what's going to happen. So the bandits come. They strip him of his clothes. And that, that sounds kind of weird. I know. I know. Yeah, take the clothes off? Well, see, that was the most valuable thing the guy had probably. Clothes were very valuable. Especially if you're, you know, if you're a wealthy Jew, particularly, they're very valuable. So they rob him. They take the most valuable thing he has, which is his clothes. They beat him up. They beat him up. Literally beat him to death, almost. And they left him there, half dead beside the road. Whoa. Worst case scenario. What am I going to do? Who's going to deliver me from this mountains? And he takes it. Sure enough, it happens. The bandits come and they rob him and they beat him and they leave him half dead. And that's what sometimes the world does. That's what the culture does. Remember what Jesus said? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his mission for you. Don't you dare underplay this. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But our, but our hero <laughs> plays with the enemy. Like a cat banging around a stuffed knots. Our hero is so great. So great. So the world comes along, culture comes along, the enemy comes along and says, What's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. And then the two guys show up. And their mantra is, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. Francis Chan said this. Francis Chan said, the world says, love yourself, grab all you can, and follow your heart. Then Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself. Grab your cross and follow me. The follower of Christ doesn't know what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. The heart of God is giving. The the heart of God is, is freedom to give, and that should be our heart also. 
you should not the word the words selfish and Christian should not be said in the same sentence. Mark Driscoll and I know in a lot of circles Mark Driscoll's fallen from grace, but he still got a good quote. Either you're selfish, he said, or you're a servant. Even either you're selfish or a servant. But fundamentally, selfish people are terrible friends, terrible neighbors, terrible spouses, terrible Christians, terrible parents, and they leave a terrible legacy. Legacy. So this priest comes, and by that the Jews go, "Oh yeah, the priest, he's the good guy, you know? He's the he'll he'll do something about this bad situation." Well, the priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. So, here's this guy, you know, beat to a pulp, he's bleeding, he's a mess, it's repulsive. He comes and crosses to the other side of the road to avoid him and keeps right on going. We don't know why. There's been speculation being a priest, he didn't want to be defiled, you know. But the bottom line is, you know, it was risky. You, the dudes that beat him up could still be in the area. Now, he, could, he could end up like that guy. You know what? When you serve others, you can sometimes end up like that guy. It was repulsive. I mean, can you imagine the, the blood? Can you imagine the condition of the body? Can you imagine the groans coming from him? It was repulsive. It was unreasonable. Why, why put myself at risk? Why spend my good money? Why take my good time to help someone I don't even know? Well, the bottom line is, the priest passed him by. And then, in verse 32, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. And something I've never connected is that we assume that there was a time gap. In other words, we assume that here was the priest and sometime later this other guy comes around. But have you ever thought the logic that they may be traveling together? I mean, a priest, a temple assistant, it would make sense. And not only that, there's strength in numbers. It makes sense. They apparently both lived in Jericho, so it makes sense they were traveling together. I mean, it makes sense that perhaps our friend, the temple assistant, just happened to see the priest, his boss, look and walk over on the other side of the road. Oh, the power of a bad example. Oh, we've got to understand, you know, these, these young people that we love so much, guess who they're watching? Who, who do you think, where are they getting their Christianity from? From us. From us. And we've got to make sure we set a good example. The, the priest, apparently, for whether it be the risk or the fact that it was repulsive or unreasonable, whatever reason, he set that horrible example when he went on the other side of the road to avoid the guy. And then this temple assistant guy does the exact same thing. We've got to set a good example. George Mueller, and he was a, he's one of those old dead guys that I know you probably don't know, but he was just a great mission-minded guy. He's the guy that ran hundreds of orphanages. And he said, our walk counts far more than our talk, always. Our walk counts far more than our talk, 
always. And there was no credit to this, but boy, it was so good. You know, it said this, you know, we should live in such a way that if anyone says, speaks badly of us, that others won't believe it's true. We should live in such a way that if someone says something bad about us, that others say that simply can't be true. We need to set a good example. So, so the priest who should have and the temple assistant who should have walks by. What's mine is mine. I'm going to keep it. And then comes the good Samaritan. I know the scripture says the despised Samaritan, but we know him as the good Samaritan. You need to know that Jews hated Samaritans on a level we probably can't understand. Uh, Samaritans were usually half Gentile, half Jew. Um, There's some mixed blood in there. Um, the Jews despised them for that. Um, they would avoid going through their cities. They would not drink after them. Uh, they would not eat after them. Just a terrible situation. Well, here comes this, then this despised Samaritan, and he walks up and he sees this guy. Now, already you're thinking, yeah, I know the story. I, I know the, how the story should go. The story should go. He walks up and kicks the guy and keeps on going. But he doesn't. The Bible says that, that he, he walks over and sees this man. And he has compassion on him. He has compassion. And I love this because... He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I need to pray about this. We do that so well. I need to pray about this. You don't see him having, Father, I know you're a God of love, and this is my enemy here. And God, I know that you, as my Father, you would want me to, to love him. I just thought I would check him. Are you serious? He doesn't do a prayer meeting. He doesn't call a business meeting at the church. He doesn't say, we've got a committee to handle that. He didn't call for a vote. You know what he does? He acts. He acts. The Samaritan sees this broken human form and takes action. He does it in three ways. First off, he does emergency care. He does comfort and triage. Comfort and triage. In verse 34, the first part... Going over to him. Now, by the way, is the risk possibly there? Yeah. Is the guy still repulsive? Uh, yeah. Is it unreasonable? Yeah. And he goes over to him. And the Bible says he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He brought comfort. He prevented infection. And he stopped the bleeding. He did what the urgency of the moment demanded. Oh, a lesson for us. There are people in our lives, in our world, that we just need to act. There's an emergency need. We need to, we, we need to speak words of comfort. We need to sometimes speak words of cleansing. And sometimes we need to bandage up their lives and stop their bleeding hearts. We need to take action. And then, and then we had this, this intermediate care. You know, the Bible says he put the man on his own donkey. 
Now, have you figured that out yet? I mean, you know, there wasn't like a two-saddle thing. You know, donkeys held one, which means if, if, the, if the Jew was on the donkey, the Samaritan's walking. So he, he takes this guy and lifts him up, helps him up, and puts him on this donkey, and he walks the rest of the way. So, so he carries, the donkey carries this man, he takes him to an inn, a place of safety, and then he takes care of him. What? What? This makes no sense. He doesn't even, first off, he doesn't even know this guy, and I'm sure he's figured out the guy's a Jew, he's a, he's a guy who would spit on him if, if he had the opportunity, and he takes him to an inn and cares for him. Do you not understand that's what God did for you? You were so unworthy, and God came and found you beside the road of life, beaten up by the world and half dead, and a Savior comes along named Jesus Christ, and He, and he pours on the, His wine of comfort, his, his oil of comfort, and His sweet Holy Spirit, and, and then He bandages up your wounds and puts you on a donkey and says, I'm going to take you and take care of you. God, Amen. God is a taking care of God. And by the way, he expects his children to be a taken care of children. Then he does extended care. So the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins. Two days wage. Two denarii. Two days wage. That's a lot. I don't know what you make a year, but you might want to do the math when you get home, figure out what a day's wage is for you, and imagine giving that to a guy you don't know, to the innkeeper. And he says, so listen, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you. I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So he does this emergency care. He takes care of the immediate needs. And then he does the immediate need. He goes and puts him in a safe place and takes care of him over the night. And then he says, now here, pay somebody. You take care of them. And here's some money. And if it's not enough, I'll be back. And I'll pay you when I come back. Wow. Wow. Well, Jesus then, in verse 36, says, okay, So now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And our teaching point makes it clear, okay? The teaching point comes along, and it says, wait, wait, the man asked, who is my neighbor? Wrong question. Wrong question. The correct is, Jesus responded by telling them the man how to be a neighbor. When we say, who is my neighbor, we're wanting to limit God's grace through us, working through us. The right answer is, how, look, look, how can I be a neighbor? How can our church be a neighbor? In this confusing, crazy world, how can we be a neighbor? Well, the man got it right. He, he said, you know, he said, well, here's the deal. He said, um, the man answered and replied and said, well, the one who showed him mercy was the one that was the best neighbor. The one who showed him mercy. I told Judy, I said, I said, you know, mercy doesn't need a reason. It just needs an opportunity. We don't, we don't have to have a reason to help somebody. I know these guys, boy, I, I, I and they sometimes beat our head against the wall as we do our benevolence program. We get some crazy requests. 
We need to be careful to evaluate each situation so we can be good stewards. But we are learning that mercy doesn't need a reason. When we do school supplies, it doesn't need a reason. When the guys go to New Orleans, they don't need a reason. It's just an opportunity. God, God did not have a reason to show his mercy to us. Only his love. And he seized the opportunity and allowed his son Jesus Christ to die. On a Roman cross. So the one who showed him mercy. And look what Jesus said. Yes. Now go. And do the same. Go. And be. A neighbor. And whether you're sitting over here. Over here. Or over here. Or over there. That's the response Jesus gives. It's not. Are they worthy? It's not. Again, their skin color or economic status is not the tats or the piercings. Go and be a neighbor. Someone, someone asked me this, or we were chatting, and I, I, don't know if he made it, I don't know if it was a question or he just made this statement. You know, what, what do you do when, in this crazy world, whoever walks through that door? And the answer is you love them. The answer is you love them. That's what Jesus tells us to do, to be a neighbor. Does that mean I agree with their sin? No. Does it mean I need to be like Jesus? Yes. Yes. And the world, when the world sees that kind of love, they won't know about that because it is so weird, so extra-worldly. They want to know about that. Our final teaching point makes a point. Social ministries cannot replace the gospel message, but neither can they be ignored. I, gee, I don't remember who said this, but we've shared it a long time now. You know, if all we do is feed people and don't share the gospel, we send fat people to hell. At the core of who we are as Dorsville Baptist Church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be social in our ministries, but we must be gospel lighthouses. Jesus fed the masses. He touched the broken and accepted the outcast. And we must do the same. So if you're here today, perhaps you've never heard this kind of love before. Perhaps you've never heard, you've heard about religion and you understand about hypocrites and people who go to church and don't do what they say. You know all of that. But did you hear a different message today? That God looks into your life and loves you and cares for you? Loves you so much he sent his son Jesus to die for you? And my friend Brent's going to be standing down front. And above all else, we'd love to share that truth with you today. We want you to know this Jesus that we have met. And then church, then church, this is our mantra. It was the mantra of the Good Samaritan. What's mine is yours. And you can have it. You can have it. That's what the world needs to see in us. Let's pray. God, thank you so very, very much for the privilege of sharing this today. And I know it's an old story, but it's a great story. And Father, I know I'm grateful for a pastor who, what, 35, 40 years ago shared this, and those three points stuck in my mind. 
And I don't know about the points, God, but I pray the truth of this message will stick in our hearts. There are challenging days now and in our future. And we've got to be prepared to be like you. We've got to be prepared to be that good neighbor. Help us to go and do likewise. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name.